The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have Chris Lagaman, Sub Commander. Go ahead and kick us off, Jim. Welcome, Chris. Um, I think it's a real exciting topic. I've probably watched too many submarine Cold War movies, but um, it, it, I think it's very fascinating. But I understand, we understand that submarines are still volunteer-based, It's it's for the most part. And I uh, noticed in your resume here that you were very quickly out of Annapolis. You joined the submarine force. Tell us a little bit about your reason for doing that long time ago. Well, I knew I always wanted to be some kind of an engineer um, way back in, you know, elementary school, grade school. Um, I wanted to get in engineering, so I, you know, took all the math and the science that I could uh, through high school. Um, I got the chance to listen to some recruiters from the Naval Academy while I attended uh, Boy State, and um, thought, "Hey, this is a heck of a deal! They're going to give me a free education, a bachelor's degree, um, all paid for. In fact, they're going to pay me to go to school, and then um, once I graduate, I only have to serve for five years, and I'm considered done." Um, so that was my primary reason. I was looking for the education, and I wanted to serve, and it seemed like a great, a great deal. So to go to Annapolis, you had to have a sponsor? Yeah, I uh, was lucky enough to get a uh, nomination from Stuart Symington, our state senator at the time. Very well known. Yeah, he was a great guy. Um, 
I just remember a very nerve-wracking interview going up to Hannibal to talk to one of his, um, I guess, staff. We didn't actually speak to the senator himself, but uh, I must have said something that impressed him because there was about 30 of us, and he only had two nominations. So so you chose the Navy. Did you have family members that were in the military or Navy specifically? We have a, we have a bit of history. Uh, my grandfather was in the Navy in World War II for a couple of years, And I found out afterwards that, well, I knew that my Uncle Wayne, my dad's youngest brother, uh, served a tour in the Navy and then uh, later became a a GS and worked at North Island on aircraft for the rest of his career. Um, But I found out later that both my Uncle Eddie and Uncle Uncle Nick were in the Army uh, during Korea. So there's there's quite a bit of military history in the immediate family. And the... uh I've been told that you've lived a lot of places, <laughs> and, and as a submariner, and is it submariner or submariner? Submariner. Submariner. Yeah. As a submariner, you've probably almost been to a lot more places. Right. Yeah, we spent a lot of time looking at coastlines that we never got to go see, you know, other than through <laughs> a periscope. But, uh, yeah, in, uh, in my 26 years, we moved 17 times, uh, moving, and a lot of those were coast to coast to coast, back and forth, so... Wherever they, wherever they needed us at the time, that's where we went. Uh, tours were anywhere from three years to 18 months. So, Maybe the first question I should have asked you, and, and you get in trouble with the Navy guys very often if you call a ship a boat or a boat a ship. <laughs> and yet I know, I don't they have on a submarine uh, chief of the boat? Yes, yeah, the senior enlisted uh, is the chief of the boat. He's basically in charge of the discipline of all the enlisted guys. Um, a submarine is a boat. Uh, when they started off, they were very small and they didn't go very far, very fast. So they'd put them on a ship, take them to where they wanted to go and then stick them in the water. Uh, now the ships, or the submarines are as big as a lot of ships are, if not bigger. Uh, the Tridents probably outweigh most of our destroyers, but, um, it's still considered a boat. Many people talk about, you know, submarine duty is the most demanding assignment in the Navy. Um, you kind of, alluded to the fact the education you were going to get and everything. Um, is that only found on submarines? or it, It's kind of unique in submarines in that um, all the officers are hand-selected. Um, back when the nuclear power program was started, Admiral Rickover promised Congress that he would personally interview every officer that he put on a ship or put on a boat. Um, and he still did it up through the end of his tour, and Admiral McKee took on that job afterwards. But most of our enlisted personnel also had some college. And the training that we went through prior to reporting to our ships, I personally had over two years. We did uh, a year in Orlando, Florida, at nuclear power school, where we were learning reactor theory and uh, covering a lot of the engineering things that we might have forgotten over the few years. And then we did six months at a prototype where we actually worked on an operating reactor plant. Uh, I happened to go to Idaho Falls, Idaho, where there were a couple of uh, mock submarines with full up operating power plants. So there was a full year. It was almost uh, 18 months of training before we were even allowed to set foot on a ship. The enlisted guys went through a similar type of training program. So um, the Navy invested an awful lot of money in the training before they, before, before they put us out there. Now, would, Chris, would you say that this was your dream job to, to do this? Or if not, what was your dream job before you fell into this? If I'd had the eyesight, I would have tried to fly. Okay. Um, I, I spent some time in aircraft and just had a blast, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, but that wasn't going to happen. I was too big and too blind. So. so you went from the air to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the running joke is there's a lot more airplanes on the bottom of the ocean than our submarines ah, up in the air. Ah, I love that. 
That's great. And when the shooting starts, they aim at the airplanes first. So <laughs> there's uh, there's many different classes of submarine. Of course, you were in the Virginia class, I guess, um, right? In the Ohio, Los Angeles, Sea Wolf. What's some of the differences between them? Well, basically, they're divided up into two. You have your attack boats, your SSNs, and then you have your SSBNs, your ballistic missile submarines. So the Tridents are our only SSBNs left. We've gotten rid of all the older uh, George Washington class that were all named after presidents. Um, so those those are the SSBNs, the SSNs, the attack boats. Um, the SSBNs' job is to go out and hide. Um, we're not a first strike nuclear capability. We're the backups. We're the guys that promise that if you shoot at us, we'll shoot back. And that's the whole reason for going out and disappearing. Nobody can stop us from launching because nobody knows where the heck we are. In fact, the people that own us, our handlers, if you will, they don't know where we are. They give us a big chunk of ocean and say, okay, as long as you stay in this box, you're all right. And that box is huge. So that's their job. Go out, bore holes in the water, be quiet, be sneaky, and launch if you're told to. Um, the attack boats are more an anti-submarine warfare specialty. We were the guys that would go out hunting the other submarines and uh, doing a lot of other things as well. Most of our time was spent in exercises, training how to do that. Um, I spent an awful lot of time at sea playing rabbit. We'd be out there running around and letting the surface ships chase us and letting the P-3 aircraft chase us, so on and so forth, giving them time to practice their ASW training. Um but our, our primary mission was to go out and hunt down other submarines. How did the P-3s track you guys? What was the method? They have a magnetic anomaly detector, that big boom that hangs off their tail. It's okay. supposed to pick up the, the distortion in the magnetic field as a result of a big piece of metal running through the water. Okay. Um, helicopters, similar. Um, some of them have the mad gear, but uh, mostly they have dipping sonar. They'll actually put a sonar buoy in the water. And you, you did mention a few minutes ago that uh, there were just a, a vast variety of different missions you guys did. Were, were yours pretty consistent or more varied? Um, it, I was kind of lucky, and then I got to see a lot of different things that we normally wouldn't do. Um, my first, um, my first uh, assignment on an SSN was pretty standard. We went out and played rabbit. We went out and did exercises with other submarines. Uh, we gave surface ships and aircraft time on target, things of that nature. When I reported at Henry M. Jackson, we were an early uh, Trident submarine, and because it was a new construction, there's a lot of things that they do, shakedown exercises. They've had to test the weapon systems. We actually got to go down to Cape Canaveral and launch uh, a missile off oh, the coast. Nice. It had dummy warheads, but they landed exactly where they were supposed to. Uh, so that was kind of neat. But they also gave us a lot of experimental exercises. We went down in, into the Bahamas and did a bunch of sound trials for weeks and weeks at a time because the Tridents were so quiet, they wanted to figure out how they could best exploit that ability. Um, they put all kinds of sound imaging gear on us. They put sound emitters on us so we could make different noises and stuff and watch out. That worked. Um, we spent about a week shooting giant flashlights out of our signal ejector so that aircraft could practice trying to track phosphorescence and light detection, that kind of thing. Um, so a bunch of really weird, crazy exercises in addition to all the shakedown stuff. So I got to see a lot of things that normally you wouldn't do unless you run a new construction crew. So how did you incorporate your education into your, into your work as far as being an engineer and, and what, how did that, how did that kind of incorporate into what you <laughs> well, were Well, I wanted, I wanted to study electronics. So that's what I did. I okay. got a degree in electrical engineering okay. at the Naval Academy. And, um, 
that was good because, you know, the ship's got a lot of electronics, radio equipment, uh, even the reactor is all controlled through um, electronic devices. Um, so that, you know, that's pretty much common to all the equipment. One of the things that I didn't do very well is I had to take a course called thermodynamics. And I'm sitting there in school going, why in the heck am I an electrical engineer and taking a class called thermodynamics? I hated it. It was horrible. It was mostly math. Um, I found it to be very difficult. Well, guess what? Reactors work on thermodynamics. <laughs> I wish I paid more attention because nuke school wouldn't have been quite as hard or as challenging as it would have been if I'd have paid more attention, I think. Well, the submarine service has changed, I guess, drastically since World War II. And I, and I guess I've read that sub, today's submarines can go down 1,500 feet or so or great depths. Yeah, it, it's in, in that area. I can't say specifically, but yes, we that's pretty deep compared to the World War II subs that were limited to 700 feet. And deeper is better because the sound conditions, you can hide better at depth and you can hear better when you're down at depth. So you do, do you have a personal depth record that you... The deepest you've ever been? Yes. <laughs> but I can't say what it is. <laughs> the, any other thing, I guess, um, you know, I, I read that many of the submarines will stay submerged for many, many days. Yeah. Do you have a personal record of that? 105 days submerged on an SSBN. Um, longest, in a, longest submerged on an attack boat was probably about 90 days. We were out in the Indian Ocean doing stupid things and stayed submerged for a long time. The food was almost gone by the time we got done. So, as far as powering the the sub, is it is it fuel powered? Is it? Uh, They're all nuclear. Nuclear. Yeah, okay. the, the Dolphin's been decommissioned, so all of our submarines are nuclear now. Okay, and so they can go for long periods of time without having to have like a fuel source. Per uh, se. Twenty to thirty years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's one of the distinctions of a submarine reactor is that it's made to be small and compact and hold an awful lot of fuel, so it theoretically would never have to be refueled for the life of the ship. Okay. Which was not the case initially. The, the Nautilus was probably refueled two or three times over her lifetime, and uh, some of the earlier SSNs had to be refueled. But nowadays they're trying to get one time because it's such an extensive um, amount of work to try to refuel one. And once you resurface after being down so long, is there an acclimation uh, period, or can you come right out and be fine? I, I, I never had any problem with it. Um, like I said, most people... If you weren't on watch or you weren't in training or you weren't running drills or you weren't fixing something, you were trying to get some sleep. So most of the sailors, officer and enlisted, spent most of their time dining, trying to get a few hours of sleep from here to there. Because I, I think my worst week was three and a half days without sleep or maybe catching a cat nap you know, for 15 or 20 minutes just because of the operations that were going on at the time. I, I've also heard that Around any or any carrier task force, there's always a picket line of submarines and destroyers. One, <laughs> one, maybe two. We don't do pickets anymore. Uh, I know where that's coming from. That back in the in World War One and Two, picket ships they were designed to stop the incoming fire before the big heavy got hit. But um, we were out there in ASW support. Uh, in fact, the six eighty eight class, which was the class subsequent to the SSN that I was on, um, the uh, Hawkbill was designed to be able to run with the carriers. Because the carriers were so fast, we didn't have submarines up to that point to keep up with them. Um, the 688 class, or the Los Angeles class, was the one that was designed to be fast enough to provide direct support <coughs> to the carrier fleet. The other thing that, again, I maybe watched too many movies, but 
the, the specifically the movie Hunt for Red October, and you really didn't say, but um, it sounds like, and and, and in my comments to you is is the cold war really over because it sounds like they you do play games with the russian subs and they track you too they try yeah they try <laughs> we keep an eye on each other um a lot of the times that we're on deployment long patrols like Vanessa SN, its primary job is to hunt submarines so they'll be out on a six-month deployment to the pacific or to the atlantic you know wherever where they happen to be stationed and most of the time you're out there keeping an eye on the bad guys whether it be Russians or Japanese or Chinese or, you know, whatever, we're out there trying to figure out what other people are doing. New weapon systems that are coming online, new sonars that are coming online. Anytime the Russians came out with a new class of ship, we were very interested in finding out what kind of sonars are they using, what kind of weapons are they shooting, that kind of thing. So we were kind of in their backyard from time to time, keeping an eye on them. Never inside the international <laughs> territory, you know, their uh, 12-mile limit. That's what we call it. Um, so we're always in international waters, but we were always in a position where we try to find out as much about them as we could. And and when you're in that kind of proximity to, you know, Russia or, you know, um, it, it probably never felt like you were, the Cold War ever ended for you guys. No, it was pretty much same old, same old, same old, yeah, as far as that activity goes. The, um, and, and, you know, that, the other part of it I read is naturally when you get that close to other ships, and I understand that you guys probably did get pretty close at times. I mean, I think there's even reported near you know collisions at one time. We've bumped into each other from time to time. It's fairly rare, but it does happen. Hmm. Yeah. So you know the other part of that that I you know I mean so you're in a you got a crew that's aboard a cramped you know timeless windowless undersea world, <laughs> and you're undersea a lot. And, you know, you're probably also doing launch drills, I mm -hmm. would guess. You've got the enemy submarines somewhere close to you. This feels like wartime. So we talked to a number of people in here that, you know, I mean, PTSD is real. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I think about life in a submarine and the conditions that you guys experience, it almost seems like it would be feel more, you know, more difficult. I wouldn't agree with that. Um, because of the type of training that we had and because of the average intelligence of the submarine force, I mean, as far as, you know, everybody's a, a volunteer and everybody has to have a certain amount of brain power. they got to get through the training before they can even get to the ship. Um, it was more, oh, my God, another drill. <laughs> you know, or, okay. Oh, my God, another thing that i got to do. Um Going back to when you were on station, if you were if you were an SSN and you were doing tracking of another ship, you wouldn't be running drills. Okay, we would haul off fifty miles once a week and do drills and fix whatever needs to be fixed. But when you're up close and personal, or you're near the coast and keeping an eye on things, you're deadly silent. You're not making any racket whatsoever. So no maintenance. Uh, you can do training, you know, as far as basic theoretical type training, the lectures and that kind of stuff that goes on in the wardroom or the or the crew's mess, but no ship's drills or anything like that would make, that would make noise. Um, if you're just doing operations, you know, home port or locally or just, you know, running um, weekly operations, then, oh, yeah, it was 24-7 drills and, and maintenance and everything else. So kind of, a, kind of a, two different things. But where I was getting at was 
Uh, a lot of times guys that describe submarine duty as hours and hours of boredom with minutes of terror because something went wrong or something broke, the reactors crammed, you know, there was some kind of a, a significant loss of power. Um, those were exciting, but they were far and few between, thank God. You know? yeah. The other thing that we like to say was that for every two or three drills that you ran, the ship ran a drill on you because it was always something that you didn't expect popped up and now you're having to deal with that before you can get back into your drill schedule. So those were kind of fun. Was there ever a time where you had to <clears throat> get past the monotony of, I would say monotony, but uh, the repetitiveness of the drills uh, and uh, how did you, I guess my question would be, how did you, how would you be able to flip the switch from drill to real world and, in that light, did Saturday you ever have morning. to do that? Saturday morning, rub it up, dub, clean up the sub. It was a from six in the morning until lunchtime. You did nothing but clean. Okay, so that was one break in the monotony. Nobody liked it, but it was at least it was a break in the in the uh, in the regular routine. Um, on the SSBNs, one of the nice things because you were large and you had extra storage space. Saturday night was pizza night, pizza and movies. Um, we had an ice cream machine that ran twenty four seven. Uh, we had a movie in the wardroom and in the cruise mess almost every night, unless operations would prohibit that. Um, so there was there was some opportunities. Uh, I won't say gambling was around or was allowed, but there was an awful lot of poker games, you know, on the on the back watches when there wasn't anything else to do. So like there was there was time to kick back and relax every now and then, but uh, and you appreciate it because they were kind of far and few between. Do you feel like commanding a submarine was more difficult task than commanding a surface vehicle because of the conditions you were in? Um, actually, I, I, I got a chance to ride several um, surface ships. I rode the uh, USS Stennis as an observer when they were um, running a new navigation system. And my son was on the uh, Abraham Lincoln, so I got to do a couple of Tiger cruises with him. But um, I think the surface ship, commander was probably the harder job i mean he had more things to worry about especially the aircraft carriers because now he's got his ship he's got his crew he's got his air detachment and yeah he's got a lot of people working under him for him but just the the number of problems that he had to deal with uh were more submarines were kind of unique in that we liked to go to sea because we were out from underneath the squadron's thumb there wasn't somebody telling us what to do or where to go or what we did wrong you know we're out there you're kind of on your own you got your orders, um, you get your packages, and you go out there and do what you need to do you know, without anybody kind of you know getting in your business. So from that standpoint, it's probably a little bit easier to be a CEO on a submarine, although you're the guy you know, when you're out there and you're underway and, and under the water, there's nobody to call up for help. You know, you got to deal with things as they come up on your own. Um, you can get support, but it's, it's going to be days away in most cases if you need it. Can you uh, talk about the psychological testing of sailors that go into the submarine service? I don't remember actually doing anything like that. I mean, we had physicals every year when, you know, there was a psychological aspect of all of our physicals, but I don't remember anything specific. I'm sure that if there were guys that had problems that got weeded out during the training program, if they couldn't hack it at academically, they were dropped to no fault. And, I mean, it wasn't like they were punished if they didn't make it through the program. I know in the prototype we had a few people wash out because the the environment was too difficult. It's hot. It's steamy running an engine room. Uh, they're hot and they're nasty. <laughs> I mean, just affect, you, know, you just don't run the steam plants. 
And steam doesn't always stay in the pipe. It likes to get out every now and then. So it's hot and humid, and the machinery's loud. And some of the guys didn't, you know, deal with that very well, so there were washouts through that. But by the time you got to your ship, I think you pretty much had screened out anybody that was going to have difficulty. Mm. I don't recall in 20 years anybody being taken off the ship because they couldn't handle it. Well, being being underwater for, you know, so long and long periods of time, um, and, and being so deep, um, was it hard to stay in touch with loved ones, or how did you guys do that? Did you it don't. was there? You don't. <laughs> you okay. Don't. No. Um, on the SSBNs, are things called familygrams, where your uh, loved ones are giving about ten to fifteen sheets of paper forms that they would fill out, and then they would deliver those to the squadron, and the squadron would look through them and make sure there wasn't any kind of bad news, or you know, you know, hey, hey, I'm divorcing you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, they would screen those and then they would be transmitted by message traffic, which was, you know, collected once a day, basically. Okay. Or every 12 hours. So we would get maybe over the course of a hundred day patrol, we might get 10 messages from our families, but nothing went out. We don't transmit. That's another thing. The first thing that happens when you get on station is all the radio transmitters get tagged out. Anything that makes noise or would put sound in the water gets caution tag so you make sure you don't accidentally hit that switch because again you're trying to be sneaky and trying to be uh, secretive so you didn't want anybody to know when you were out there the um many of our veterans that we have here in the museum especially the combat veterans they talk about a bond that develops among the men and uh, a closeness i would think that the guys in a crew of a submarine that would be much greater the closeness that bond that that grows there. Oh yeah, um, for a number of different reasons. First of all, just the physical proximity because you're working in close quarters with these guys. There was very little. There was a lot of respect from the enlisted to the officers and back and forth, but it was more um, relaxed than it would than you would see like on a surface ship. Um, you know, or you would never see a third class on a surface ship addressing an officer directly, asking him a question or. And our, you know, something that would be more of a, a pal type question as opposed to something, you know, uh, pertaining to his duty. So, yeah, we were pretty close to enlisted guys and, you know, they showed the, the appropriate respect, but there was a lot of kidding and joking going along. And if you cross the uh, equator, there was this thing called the over the line ceremony and there was no <laughs> bar. It didn't matter whether you're enlisted or officer, you were going to get the same treatment. Um so, and, and that was kind of nice. Again, you know, the enlisted guys on the submarines were just as intelligent as most of the officers, if not maybe more so in some cases. The reactor operators were probably some of the sharpest guys on the ship. Um, the mechanics that were selected to be uh, the um, um, boiler technicians basically would sample new water chemistry analysis and things like that. Those guys were pretty darn sharp. Um, and the uh, engineering lab technicians who did all our radi- radiation monitoring and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they were good guys. So you, you mentioned a couple of the jobs on a submarine. Um, I guess they're not, I'm sure every job was important, but I guess I'm, you're tailing Russian subs. So you got a sonar guy mm-hmm. that, and, and of course I'm going back to my Hollywood right, movies right. here, you know, Jonesy on the hunt for red yeah. October. Right. And those he, are just a little over the top, but not that much. I really? mean, those guys are well-trained and we've got some pretty sophisticated computer equipment that does a lot of the analysis for it, but still a lot of it is just listening. I actually had a sonar operator who was the first known, I'm thinking back, not a sonar operator. He was a quartermaster. 
the guy that runs the charts and keeps track of where you're at, right? They also take the soundings, right? How deep's the water kind of thing. I'm almost positive that he was accredited with the first detection of a Russian typhoon fathometer. He was sitting there on the headphones listening for the ping to come up from the bottom, and he heard one that was completely different frequency than our, than our fathometer frequency. Come to find out there was a typhoon up on the surface above us pinging down at the same time we were. And he picked it up and goes, something's not right. We checked it out and figured out what it was. With so many specific jobs, you know, you were mentioning people have specific things. Does the crew normally stay together over uh, a long period of time or is it just per deployment? How, how often do you guys weave in and out between uh, crews? Guys, guys are put on the ship typically for a period of three years. It might be a little shorter. It might be a little longer. Depends on how the deployment goes. But it's not a mass other than the blue and gold crew on the, on the boomers, on your attack boats, about a 30-year crew would change over each year. And we would try to manage that so that we didn't have a massive you know, influx of new people or, or old talent going away. So, yeah, about 30% every year. Was there a crossover time so that the existing crew could kind of give the nuances to the new guys and say, hey, this is what kind of like a handoff, a warm handoff, or was it just cold? Sometimes your relief would report before you got there. A lot of times it was after the fact. It was really dependent on what the schedules were like. Okay. And, and, you know, how the – sometimes guys were stuck in a training pipeline for some reason, so they came in a little late. Sometimes they came in a little early. You just (laughs) – you tried to manage it, but sometimes it managed you. And would they fly out to meet you guys wherever you were and get on ship? Or uh, typically, we'd pick them up in a port somewhere. Okay, you don't fly into a submarine. There's no place to land. No, I mean like on. Would they? <laughs> <laughs> would you fly into like a port or yeah something like that? Uh, and, yeah, mo- most of most of the uh, transfers occurred back in home port. Okay, but once in a great while we'd get a, a new recruit or a new relief, an officer maybe if there was a specific reason to turn over an officer. So no one's swimming up to the to, boat to get on? No. Well, I, saw, I did see that once. <laughs> <laughs> he was late for me turning for liberty. <laughs> so in talking about the crew there, I mean, give us a little understanding. I think I read that there's a blue and a, and a gold crew. Yes. So you guys all leave the ship and another crew yeah, comes the, on board? Yeah, the idea behind the, the, the boomers or the SSBNs was to be on station, period. Just be out there because there's a lot of ocean to cover. And um, the typical, with the Tridents now, it became much more standard. 100 days out, uh, a four- to five-week uh, refit with a complete crew changeover and a turnover of all the you know, the ship status and everything, and then the next crew takes it out for 100 days. So they became, and I think they're still using the schedule very much like that. So you're 100 days on, 100 days off, 100 days on, 100 days off. So night and day, you can't tell them apart. And it's it's a series of eight hour shifts or so. Six. Is it six yeah. Most most watches shift? on submarines are six hours, so we have six hour watches for four shifts a day. How do you ever keep track of days and things like that? <sighs> it's really not that big a deal. I mean, you kind of know, but you don't worry about it. Um, you, you can tell the lights are on white during the daytime and they're turned to red at night. Um, at least up in the control room area where you're worried about becoming, you know, sensitive. You never know when you might have to go to an emer- you know, emergency surface or an emergency uh, trip to periscope depth, so you don't want to be you know, accustomed to white light, and then all of a sudden you're up there in the dark and can't see what's going on. But um, if we're going to periscope depth at night, we rig control for black to let everybody's eyes get used to, to the dark, and then we pop up and you know, you're on the periscope watching for contacts and that kind of thing. But um, no, Seriously, though, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you're, you're either on watch or you're in training or you're working or you're asleep, so it doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime. You just, 
most of us would be on an 18 hour schedule. We do a six hour watch. We do six hours of maintenance or training then six hours in the rack and then you start over again. So is that different for officers though? Same, same. same. Yeah. Um, I've had the pleasure of standing one watch every four shifts. I've also had the pleasure of doing port and starboards with a buddy. We were on six on six off back in the maneuvering room, just hating life. <laughs> and, and, so with these crews, are, is there a mixture of men and women? Is it all men? Is there? Can, can I break that down for us a yeah, little bit? I, I missed it. Um, it happened after I left the service, but I understand now that there are a couple of the Trident submarines that have been um, repurposed so that they'll have both male and female crew. And that's the only ships that we're doing that, only submarines we're doing on as the Tritons. You just can't facilitate that on an attack boat. There's just not the way to do it. And with the you know with the military the way it is um, we we have volunteer armies and navies mm-hmm. and is um, there been any, with the recent uh, press about recruiting challenges do you know kind of what the uh, where we're at with submarine recruiting or uh, things of that nature? Um, it's never really been a problem. In fact, for a while there we had an excess of personnel because we decommissioned a lot of our uh, attack submarines. We went from somewhere in the neighborhood of 112 down to 50 in a period of about three years. This happened right around 2000, 2002, something like that. Um, just decided we didn't couldn't afford that many submarines out there running around. They were too expensive to maintain and operate. Um, I have not been I, – I did some recruiting for the service after I um, stopped uh, or finished my sea tours. Um, I recruited in San Diego and I recruited again in New York City. And um, – it was a drastic change just over that period of time from the amount of enlistments that were going on and how far it had dropped off. This would have been in 2000 and let's see. Yeah, right around 2000, there was a big drop in um, interest, if you will. And recruiting became fairly difficult. And I understand they're, they're still struggling. I mean, they're able to keep the boats maintained and in man, but a lot more effort being put into it than, than before. And with the, from what my understanding is, what you were saying earlier, there's a, a certain type of man or woman that would be appropriate for this job. Is it is it getting even more difficult to find that quality of candidate, and for a longer period of time? The the Navy does a lot of strange things when it comes to recruiting. They throw a lot of money at it. <laughs> I mean, to get. To get somebody to sign up as a submariner, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars, enlistment bonuses, sign on for six years would be, I think a minimum is five, but typically it's a six-year enlistment, which is hard when you're trying to convince a kid to join the Navy and say, oh, by the way, you're going to do it for six years. Um, my uh, One of my nieces um, could have easily qualified and gone into submarines or into nuclear power if she'd wanted to, but ended up going electrician and she's serving on a carrier right now, but, and she's enjoying it. But, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tough to convince somebody to do that kind of stuff. Uh, basically they, they got to be interested in engineering or an engineering related field. And they've got to recognize that, you know, basically having four meals a day and a a bunk of your own, (laughs) and you know, some quiet time. Um, it's a little easier to sell that way. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody's shooting at you. Nobody's yelling at you. Yeah. You're kind of down there doing your job. Well, one of the, one of the things that I I kind of think may be drastically different from the submarine service 
you know, a lot of our veterans that tell, they talk about the first day they didn't have to put the uniform on and getting out in the real world and trying to find a, a job. But you're mm-hmm. describing a crew that has been fairly well educated. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they probably have a pretty good career path coming out of the submarine service. Yeah. Most of them do. Um, I actually got, when I was on one of my shore duties, was um, um, at the development squadron. And we were tasked with looking at how could we translate each job that a sailor would have to a civilian job. And some of them were easy. I mean, if you did any kind of engineering, you know, mechanical or electrical, electronics, uh, that was an easy one. Even, you know, our radio operators had a a background in electronics and electricity. Um, Our mechanics, our machinist mates, obviously, um, had a lot of transferable skills. Some of them weren't quite so easy, like a sonar operator. Um, even though he's working on a fairly sophisticated piece of equipment, he doesn't necessarily understand what's going on electronically. He's just watching that display and knowing what to look for. They had trouble transitioning directly to another career. The uh, quartermaster is the same thing. Uh, basically, the only thing we could come up with is that they were good clerks because they spent most of their time handling the charts, making sure we had the right charts, that they were all properly corrected. Every chart had to be corrected. Um, at least on a on a monthly basis because of things that change um, on the charts themselves. So those were always constantly being updated. Um, and one of the things that was going on as I was leaving the surface, they were consolidating a bunch of the ratings. A lot of ratings went away. Signalmen went away. Nobody's flying flags anymore or using semaphore. You know, it's all radio transmission. So that rating got merged into the quartermaster rating, which later got merged into the torpedo men rating. So now we have torpedo men who might be up at the control room running, you know, managing charts, or they might be down there loading tubes and ready to fire torpedoes. So um, it was really interesting to see some of the consolidations that they came up with trying to reduce the number of specialties and thus giving guys more training and a, a, a more uh, adept in their background so that when they got out, they would have better opportunities. Do you see a, a lot of the crew being career Navy? Um, about, I'd say about, Half to two-thirds would do more than their single uh, enlistment. And if they waited through two enlistments, they would probably go for additional. After you've got in 12 years, it's hard to not look at that 20-year point going, you know, <laughs> do I really want to turn that down? Although I know a couple after their second enlistment, you know, maybe they were on a really good first boat and not so good second boat, and then they decided to get out. And that had a lot to do with it, I think. I was shocked at the differences in the climates from one command to another. Um, having been on four different ships and on one ship that had two crews, I prayed every day, thank God I'm on the gold crew and not the blue crew, because <laughs> their CEO was awful. He was horrible. He was mean as hell. And we were sitting back with Captain Farmer, who was just probably like, you know, the greatest CEO you could ask for. Demanding, but you always knew what he wanted. He always knew what he wanted. It. There was no surprises. Um, I got to finish my um, officer at the deck underway training, um, because we were going into the shipyard on when I was on uh, the um, on this um, I'm drawing a blank <laughs> on the Hawkbill. Um, I had to transfer over to another ship for uh, while they were on um, a deployment for about two months to finish up my underway qualifications, and that ship was significantly more relaxed than, than the ship that I was assigned to. So 
it was um, really neat to see that difference. Um, you know, you can, ha- <laughs> and you know, my first ship being as naive as I was, I didn't know it was a big deal to have water up to the deck plates in the engine room. That's the way it always was. I got to my second ship and it's like, there's no water in the bilge. Why? Oh, we don't let water in our bilge. <laughs> it's like difference in night and day. Of course, old ship versus new ship, but it was still just interesting to see the, sometimes the dichotomy from one place to another. In such tight quarters and, and uh, you know, long periods of time, how did you guys manage conflict resolution from the smallest conflict to maybe even larger conflicts between crew or any, anything else? It wasn't too much of it, actually. Um, sometimes the enlisted guys would get into it. I mean, it'd be very rare, and either they took care of it themselves or the chief of boat would get involved and, and handle it and then tell the skipper what he did. Um I only remember one squallow being queen officers, and they worked that out. I mean, it was a personality conflict. It wasn't, you know. We got in more trouble in port than we did on, <laughs> we on the ship. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you got a few beers under your belt, and all kinds of strange things would happen. The um, So you were in from 78 to 2004, and during that time we had Desert Storm. And I know that some submarines actually fired some missiles yeah. during Desert Storm. Um. I was off the ships by the time that came around, but we did have, we had the fire control system and we had the tube-launched harpoons and tomahawks, so we would have that ability, and I trained on how to do that, set the the flight profile up in the the computer programs and whatnot, but yeah, in Desert Storm, I don't know if it was one of the initial strikes, but it was in the early stages, there were several uh, multiple launches uh, in the the 688s that had the vertical tubes in the bow which was one of the other thing, changes they made to the 688s is they put vertical launch tubes forward of the sail, as, whereas the boomers had all their tubes after the sail. So, um, but, And they, they worked just like they did off a surface ship. They just happened to be wet when they came out of the water instead of dry. The, um, the other thing that I thought was fascinating in trying to prepare for the interview here, you know, I was looking at the Cuban <clears throat> Missile Crisis, thinking about that in 62. Mm-hmm. It was a very scary time, right? I think it was more scary than any of us really believe. And it's oh, yeah. because they put, Russians put missiles 90 miles yeah. from our coast when international waters goes out, what? 12, 12 miles, 12 miles. So you can the scariest, a, the scariest part of that was from the time that we recognized there was a launch, they'd already hit us. I mean, it's you're talking minutes of flight time. <laughs> 90 miles, just a little lob, uh, as opposed to shooting from halfway across the world yeah. where you've got some reaction time. I mean, knowing that a Russian sub, and, and I've heard, you know, Russian submarines, yep. as we do, off probably, our coast. right yeah. off the coast there. And I'm thinking, why are we upset over 90 miles? You know? Well, that came a lot later, but um, we usually knew where they were. You know, that's how we knew they were there. We were, somebody had trailed them in or we'd picked them up as they were coming in. Um, so, and I'm, I'm sure they had, well, it was it was kind of strange, and I don't know if I should be, going to this or not, but you remember the guy by the name of Walker? It was one of our biggest security leaks. He sold a whole bunch of information to the Russians. They had no freaking idea that we were doing some of the stuff we were doing until he let them know that we were doing that, and it scared the hell out of them. And that's when they really started getting serious about building some newer, quieter submarines. Their submarines are so noisy, you could hear them for 50 miles away um, and recognize and tell who it was because of the noise they made. Uh, well, they figured out after that that they needed to get, you know, a lot more serious about making the submarines quieter, and they did. It, they were getting scary quiet. 
the good news was is that they came out initially quiet, but they didn't have the the same kind of maintenance that we had. So after a few years, they started getting noisy. So they were easier to keep an eye on. The ones that bother us now are the are the German built uh, diesel boats that run around on batteries, exceptionally quiet. And China's bought some or copied some. So those are the guys that we really are concerned with as far as if we had to go out and find those guys, that's a challenge. Yeah, I just read about that, and I, I had to reread it about three times. The thing. I didn't know the Germans had submarines now. But oh, yeah. You yeah. boat 212, I think, yeah. one of the mm-hmm. – and it's supposed to be the world's most quiet submarine. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fairly good-sized submarine. I mean, it's small compared to ours, but it's, it's – um, basically a diesel boat it runs you know when they're running submerged on the battery at five knots <laughs> they don't make any noise it's just all there is to it they're very very quiet now of course they have to come up and snorkel periodically to recharge their batteries and that's when we pick them up and, and know what they're doing but again they got smart and they started using commercial diesel so they make the same noise that a merchant diesel would make so that kinda, that's the challenge it kind of just still cracks me up i mean no it they're still going five miles an hour <laughs> how do you get there yeah very slowly right yeah slowly and methodically but it's well uh, again going back to our old diesel boats you mo- did most of your transit on the surface and you could be running your diesel engine and you could put a lot more power to the screw than you can on the battery they can go fast on the battery but not for very long you know you, you deplete it just like our electric cars right you can go 105 miles an hour but not very far i, I just wasn't aware that they were still building you know Breathing engines like that. Oh yeah, and they've got uh, they've got uh, Japanese sonars that are incredible too. Sony it makes a lot of the sonars <laughs> for the Japanese and the, for the Germans. Well, you mentioned like uh, merchant ships. Is there any uh, issues with that? With any travel by regular merchant ships or cruise ships that you guys? You know, does it impact the uh, the? We stay away from them. Okay. You know, if we're out there on a patrol trying to be quiet and sneaky, if you hear a merchant coming, you get out of his way. Um, typically, never let anything pass within five miles of you if you can avoid it. Of course, now when you're coming into port, you know, different rules. But when you're out there in the open ocean, it can get busy and it's noisy, but you can usually stay out of the other guy's way if you're paying attention. Does temperature of the water impact anything? Yes. Okay. I, I lived in Alaska for 14 years, so I'm just picturing... I wouldn't want to personally be in the water there. I didn't know if it affected the ships at all or the boats. Um, actually, it's comfortable running around in cold water because the ship stays cooler. Okay. You know, we spent uh, almost three months in the Indian Ocean, and the ships were not designed to operate 90-degree water. And it was it was our sweat pack, <laughs> so we referred to it as. It was hot all the time. Uh, in fact, we had, had eaten the impellers on all of our chill water pumps, so we ended up going into Diego Garcia, for about two weeks to have all of them remanufactured, and it was 105 degrees, <laughs> tropical island, wow. middle of summer. It was horrible. It was just awful. So you just you just said it was 90 degrees? At the surface, the water was 90 degrees, yeah. Okay. And this, they weren't designed to operate in that warm water. Gotcha. So, but if you're underwater, it's probably... It gets a lot colder a lot. As deeper you go, the cooler it gets, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But your question about temperature, the, the way the sound travels through water is greatly affected by salinity and by temperature. And you talk about layers, you'll have a warm layer and then a cold layer, and the water, the sound will bend this way, but it won't go that way. So one of the reasons we change depth or like to stay deep is it changes the sound conditions so that we can hear them, but they can't hear us. Interesting. Yeah. So the, uh, the, one of the things that I read, too, that you got the blue and gold crews and uh, – 
West Virginia, I've heard that there is a children's home in West Virginia that the crew, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, there was, uh, well, first of all, every submarine has a parent city or a, um, kind of like a, what they call a sister city. Like we've got, you know, the USS Jefferson City is one of the second flight 68s. And there's a ongoing dialogue between the city and the ship. They do things back and forth. Um, the West Virginia, that particular one is they actually, had, uh, I won't say adopted, but they, um, the crew raised money for the orphanage. Uh, they made visits to the orphanage, talked to the kids, you know, they had a blast doing that. Not the whole crew, but they'd send out you know, a delegation of sailors uh, when they were in port. And uh, there was every ship did something like that. Um, when I was on Henry M. Jackson, it was named after the senator from Washington State. So we actually took a cruise. We took a whole bunch of people from from his hometown, Everett, Washington, picked them up in Bangor and drove them up the Sound and took them back to Everett. There's a fairly good-sized port there. Um, and just you know gave them a chance to ride a submarine. Um, and then there was some ongoing um, between that family and the ship. and um, So it's... To some degree, every ship does it. It's not. Sometimes it's a big deal. Sometimes it's just infrequent. But um, we try to keep some kind of community community relations like that going on. Well, we really appreciate having you here, Chris, today in studio with us and sharing your your story and your history there. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with that we didn't ask you or that the listener might uh, be interested in, just to, as a kind of like a wrap up here? Yeah, just real quick. Um, going to periscope depth is always done with a very large pucker factor because if you bump into anything, it's your fault. Nobody knows you're there, right? So it's a, it's, it's a rather elaborate procedure where you're setting up and you're checking all your contacts and you're make, trying to make a rough determination based just on sound and the way the sound moves left to right, how far away they are. But there's always that chance that there's somebody just sitting up there. Well, I went to periscope depth in the middle of the frickin' Pacific Ocean one afternoon, perfectly sunny day, nice weather, doing all the routine, coming up on the periscope. I'm looking straight up, not seeing anything straight above us, you know, on the surface. Everything's fine. I break the surface, and all I see are these big black and white vertical stripes filling the entire periscope field of view. Emergency deep. We went through the whole routine, uh, going back down, you know, in in an emergency dive type situation, worrying about a collision. It's a freaking beach ball off of a cruise ship. Of all the ocean out there, I came up with my periscope head window six inches from this stupid beach ball. <laughs> and I caught so much crap for that for the next six months. The guys teased me about it. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. So that was early on in your uh, career? Uh, yeah, that was my – that was on the Henry M. Jackson. So, yeah, that would have been my second ship. Yeah. Okay. So I was – I was not a new OD. I was one of the more senior ODs, but I was junior as far as the other officers are concerned. But That's a great story. Nobody yes. believed me at first. I mean, the captain come up, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, you got to look at this captain. He looks at it, he just shakes his head and walks away. So how many random beach balls did you get in your career after that? Just the one. Okay. You just didn't the get one. to paint a thing onto the hull of the ship for a beach ball. No, they didn't paint a beach ball. None of your ball. crewmates sent you beach balls for no, Christmas no, or anything? No, they, they were pretty cool. Though. I mean, it came up occasionally, but they, well, they didn't you know, let me live it down. Well, you know, that's one of the things that we insist. I have a lot of veterans that tell us that, you know, I, I didn't do anything exciting. And I like to tell people in the military, there's always those kind of stories. Oh, there's that, there's excitement. I don't know if you can do it without. <laughs> what a great story. Uh, I think another time uh, we were doing a, a test on our 
on our buoys. We had a buoy that would fly up like a kite up to the surface, and it had a radio antenna on it. And that's how we managed to copy traffic without supposedly anybody knowing we were there. Well, we were doing a test to verify the integrity of the system and got up to about 15 knots, and all of a sudden the tension on the cable went to zero. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I had to call the captain and tell him the, uh, the uh, radio buoy operational check failed. He goes, what do you mean? I said, the buoy came on. <laughs> it was only a million-dollar buoy, so it's like we had to go up and circle around and find it and sit on it for a while until we could uh, send a message to let folks know where it was so they could send the buddies, go out and pick it up. But, I mean, it was about the size of this table. Wow. And uh, it was on a big old steel cable, and it snapped. <laughs> Jim, anything else from you tonight before any other questions you have for Chris before we uh... – no, in the show today, it's been great. You know, I'm. What's your favorite submarine movie, Chris? Um, I loved Red October. I'd read the book before the movie, and the movie was better than the book. But it was great until they started sending Morse code over the periscopes. <laughs> First of all, we don't have blinking lights on our periscope, and second of all, nobody knows Morse code anymore. Other than that, it was pretty good. Uh, the other one that sticks in my mind is I think it was Crimson Tide where there's ah. the big squabble between Denzel Washington and the old gruff guy that played the CO, whether they should shoot or not shoot. It made for a good movie, but the premise was all wrong. Mm. Submarine's never going to be a first strike platform. It's always going to be the retaliation. For that very reason that made the argument in the movie is if you can't call it back or you can't guarantee that you can call it back. Once you've told them to launch, they're going to do everything in the world to launch until they get a message saying don't launch. Mm. And you're down there deep going to launch. You're not getting any messages at this point. So you, to, to try to call it off is fairly difficult. Do you stay in touch with guys you served? Uh, yes. I've got a few shipmates that I still correspond with, um, mostly guys that I served directly with. That were, you know, we spent three years together, so you kind of lived together when we were ashore, that kind of thing. So um, wouldn't call them best buds because they're on one side of the country and I'm somewhere else, but um, we still – Still see each other and still email and Facebook and that kind of stuff. So. Any reunions for submariners? They do. Um, it's It was more common with the older ships, um, guys that spent significant, you know, stories and time together during wartime. Um, not so much now. You don't see as much of it as it used to be. Yeah. You know, with, with you know, again, Facebook and the Internet now, it's – Guys, stay in touch that way. And Absolutely. The reunions require travel and money and that kind of stuff. So you're right they're not as popular that. as they used to be. Well, anything else tonight, guys, before we wrap up? No, I can't think of anything. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, we appreciate having you. I mean, it's uh, it's always good to meet someone who served. We appreciate your service and yeah. your contribution to the country. And uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off from the uh, Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. 
This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum as we welcome Pat Swinger, O'Fallon historian and author. The city of St. Louis and nearby St. Louis and St. Charles counties became known as the gateway to the West because it was an ideal spot for tradesmen, adventurers, and traders to transact because of its connection to the Ohio, Mississippi, and Missouri rivers. The story of O'Fallon, Missouri featured many of the same storylines. American Revolutionary War veterans were the early settlers, and many are buried nearby. During the War of 1812, there were several forts, including nearby Fort Zumwalt, built to defend the settlers against Indian attacks. During the Civil War, the metropolitan area was very conflicted and were both northern and southern sympathizers. Our guest tonight is Pat Swinger. While Pat knows O'Fallon and St. Charles best, the same struggles were experienced throughout the area.